This morning, I want to begin by talking about God's timing. I think this is something that if we're honest with ourselves in the life of a believer, is probably one of the most difficult times is when things don't happen the way we think they should or when we think they should. One of the toughest times for a believer is a time of waiting. Yes is great. No we can take, but silence is. Silence may be golden, but to the Christian, it's, it's very frustrating. Uh, because we want him to do things the way we think he should and when we think he should and how we think he should. And, you know, we can say, God, you are perfect in all of your ways. We believe his timing is perfect, but do we act like it? Do we live like it? Or do we question God in the moments when things aren't going how we think they should? God is not displaying his full power and glory and bringing those who shake their fists at him to their knees when we, we think he ought. Or God doesn't bring something to fulfillment in, in our time. And the tension that we have as believers is that God opens his word to us. And he opens his plan of redemption. And we know what he's doing. We know the end. And we're like, God, hurry up. Do this quickly. But we're tempted to put ourselves in his place. God, why don't you do this? Why don't you come the way I think you should? And then we, we end up like two-year-olds when it comes to God, right? Why is this happening now? Why are you waiting? Why did you do it this way? Why, why, why? And this passage we're going to look at this morning sees Jesus' brothers doing that and sees this, this muttering going on with the Jews, and they're asking why. Who is this Jesus? Why is he doing th- things this way and not that? Um, and especially with Jesus' brothers, and we'll get to that tension in a moment. But it's going to get us to ask a lot of those questions, and then we're going to do some self-examination ourselves. Because it's easy to read this passage and say, why didn't the brothers get it? Why didn't the Jews get it? Like, you idiots, he's standing right there. How could you miss this? But how often are we guilty of the same things? How often are we guilty of missing God's greater plan so that our daily satisfaction can be attended to. So open your Bibles, if you will, to John chapter 7. So as you're turning, this is a bit of a transition in in the Gospel of John. Last week we looked at the end of this long discourse in chapter 6, and he's, he's ministering in Galilee. It was on the heels of the Passover And Jesus said some things and basically causes people around him to make a decision. Uh, Either we're going to believe this guy who's telling us to eat his flesh and drink his blood or we're going elsewhere. And the response of the disciples is beautiful. Where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. But to many, the decision is not that easy and many will leave. And that sets us up where we are now. And we're going to walk through this passage together. But let me read and then we'll kind of set the tone of what's going on here. And I think there's a lot for us to learn within this passage. Chapter 7, verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of the booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that all your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast... Then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. Well, some said, he's a good man. Others said, no, he is leading people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Let's pray. Lord, as we open your word, We see your insight into our human condition. You 
are so awesome and majestic and great. And all these words that we sung about you this morning. Yet from our view, there's a lot of questions, there's a lot of confusion, and it's how it's always been. But Lord, I pray that your spirit would make your word clear to us, that you would enlighten us, open our eyes, give us wisdom to what you want us to learn from these scriptures. Lord, strip away any desires of ourselves that fit you into our box. Lord, help us to repent of any ways we are not trusting in you or we are ashamed of you because of the world. Lord, I just pray that you would bring clarity to my message this morning. uh, That you would speak to the hearers here. That we would be transformed by your word. That we can rest in your timing and be encouraged by how you fulfill this, this great feast. And uh, Lord, I just pray your blessing on the rest of this sermon this morning. May it be a sweet offering to you. May it be incense before your throne. May we have hearts that are prone to worship instead of wander. And that you may use this for the sake of your name being glorified here and everywhere we go throughout the week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So he begins, like he does very often in the Gospel of John, with after this. So what is after this referring to? Well, last week we saw also an after this in verse 66. So Jesus has this whole long discord about the bread, the bread of life, and how he's the bread of life, and and what we need to do to, to, to partake of it. And after this, after that whole speech, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked. Then after this, so another time has passed, Jesus is, he went about in Galilee. And uh, he was not about to go to Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. And now the Feast of the Booths was at hand. So let me tell you a little bit about the life of, of Israel in the festival cycle. Because they were an agrarian culture or agriculture drove their entire calendar, uh, they, they went from feast to feast and from harvest to harvest of different crops, and the nation depended on that. And so God instituted these feasts, these remembrances of what God had done throughout the year. And they were, they were a big deal in the life of Israel. And so we know where we are now by how John spaces out his gospel. And John's very intentional. When John mentions a feast, pay attention because there's a spiritual significance to it. John is actually tracing Jesus' ministry through by these feasts. We know how far in it is by how many Passovers have been mentioned. There's only one Passover per year. There's already been two. The last one was at the beginning of chapter 6. Chapter 6, 4, it was the time of the Passover. And now it is the time of the Feast of the Booths. So the Passover was in the first month of the year, and the Feast of the Booths was in the seventh month of the year. So six months has passed since this last conversation with Jesus and those who were following him. Some left, some stayed. And so John kind of catches us up of what's been going on since then. He says, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Galilee was in Israel. Now, now we, we refer to the entire nation of Israel, but then there was, there was Judea and there was Israel, and Samaria separated the two. So Jesus was way in the north in Galilee. You had Samaria, which we talked about this before, the Jews did not want to go through. And then you got Jerusalem, which was the spiritual hub. And he didn't want to go down there, this word in the Greek for Jews, it, it's, it's Judeans. Those in Judea were seeking to kill him. So Jesus was walking around in Galilee. And both of these words are continuous. Jesus was going about, and they were seeking to kill him. So Jesus was going about ministering, and they were seeking to kill him at the same time. Now John has a very different purpose in his gospel than what we call the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Because they give a synopsis of Jesus' ministry. So John doesn't give a synopsis of the entire ministry, giving uh, equal attention to each part of it. John has a very particular focus. John spends a lot of time... On the, on the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, sprinkles in a couple teachings here and there, and then most of the time is spent on the last week of Jesus' life. 
But we know that this matches up with the synoptics because if you look at Mark chapter 7 through 9, and you can go back there later, but Mark talks about this entire time in Galilee and all the things that Jesus is doing in Galilee at the time. But to John, it's just a footnote because what really happens, the importance happens in Jerusalem. Because that's where all the spiritual significance was. That's where everyone was looking to be reminded of what God had done. And that's where everyone gathered. And so John focuses his attention there. So that just kind of brings us up to speed of where we are in this festival cycle. And so those of you who love history are going to really appreciate this. And uh, those of you who don't, I want you to get excited about uh, understanding some of these festival significances. Because let's be honest. As Westerners, we read the Bible for what we understand and for what appeals to us. And so we read through and say, Festival of the Booths, I don't understand that, keep reading. Uh, Festival of Tabernacles, I don't understand that, keep reading. Or when, when words come up that make no sense to us, it's just easier to, to keep reading on instead of digging deeper. I'll be honest, I'm, I'm guilty of that. But this week in digging deeper in the Festival of the Booths, it was amazing what I learned and it was amazing uh, what Christ is doing here. And hope you guys track with me. I want you guys to follow with me. And so we're going to do a little Old Testament survey. I know you guys have said you like when we do that. We're going to do that. Let me just give you kind of some, some broad brushes on what's going on in the Festival of the Booths. And then we're going to look at some Old Testament passages. So what this festival is, is when the Israelites were in the wilderness and God brought them out of, out of Egypt, uh, they had to make these lean-to shelters. They would take palm branches, they would take other branches, and they, w- they would dwell in them. There were holes in, in between the leaves so they could see the stars. Uh, this, this wasn't a fortification by any means, but it was a home. It was a dwelling within the wilderness. And God provided in the wilderness. And this festival God instituted so that they would remember that he provided for them in the wilderness. And that they were to build these little huts or booths all around Jerusalem. And this was one of the three mandatory festivals, and we'll get to that in just a second. But every male who lived within 20 miles of Jerusalem was required to come to these. And if you lived in Jerusalem, this was so much a part of, of your life that if you had a home in Jerusalem, you would not sleep in your own bed. You would build one of these booths on top of your roof. And so during this festival, there would be these booths, these, these tents. Some refer to it as the, the great uh, Jewish camping festival. It was just, it was just tents set up all, all around with these symbolic branches on them to remember that God had provided. And this also coincides with their produce harvest or their, uh, their uh, winemaking. And so, you know, this is in the fall. It always happened mid-September, October. And so this was not only a reminder of what God has done, but also a celebration of one of their biggest harvests. And so this was probably one of the, the, the favorite of the festivals of the Jews because they came and there was a lot of symbolism, there's a lot of scripture reading, but it kind of was one big party. They would do this for seven days and on the eighth day there'd, there'd be this massive celebration where everyone would sing and dance and cheer. And that's what's going on. And so, but I want you to turn first to Deuteronomy chapter 16. If you really want to know about all these feasts, you can go to Leviticus 23, a lot more detail than we're going to get into this morning. But I encourage you to, it is fascinating. And so part of what we know about these feasts comes from Scripture, but part of it also comes from the record of the priests. The priests kept a record of every Scripture that was read, of every process that they went through. And since Jesus is going to be in this feast through the rest of chapter 7 and chapter 8, we'll bring out some of these details along the way. But I want you to get the the gist of it first in Deuteronomy chapter 16. So starting in verse 13. Deuteronomy 16, 13, you shall keep the feast of the booths seven days. When you have gathered in the produce from your threshing floor and your wine presses, you shall rejoice in your feast. You and your son and your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your towns. For seven days, you shall keep the feast of the Lord your God at the place that the Lord will choose, because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce, and in all the work of your hands, so that you will all be altogether joyful. It's a beautiful picture, right? Three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose. Pay attention to these, because we're going to walk through them. At the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at the Feast of the Weeks, and at the Feast of the Booths. So these are the, the three big feasts. These are the big three that all of the Jews are required to come to. Yes, it was the males specifically were spoken of, but they were to bring everyone with them, even the servants within your house. So let's talk about the significance of these three because these are important. 
Because when we look at the scriptures, we teach and we should know that Christ fulfills all of the Old Testament, but how? How does Christ fulfill these feasts? How does Christ fulfill the law? And we're not going to get into the law now, but we will with the feasts. Because in these feasts, they were a remembrance of what the Lord has done. They were to train people to look to the provision of the Lord and celebrate who their God was. Jesus is, is truly God, and now he's, he's come. These feasts should find their fulfillment in him. So let's walk through these. Feast of the Unleavened Bread. Anybody know what that is? should be simple. This is the one we probably all know. The Passover. How did Jesus fulfill the Passover? Well, this one's a little easier because the New Testament lays this out pretty clearly. Jesus is the Passover lamb. The Passover festival was a reminder that by a blood of a spotless lamb, their lives were saved from death and they were redeemed by the blood of the lamb. And they were brought out of slavery into freedom. There are many of those parallels for us. By the blood of the lamb, we are brought out of slavery to sin into freedom in Christ. And we celebrate this feast of the Passover. They used unleavened bread because they were in a hurry. God said, don't use leaven. Bake it quickly. And that's why in communion, we use unleavened bread. Because we break it the way they did, being reminded that Christ's body was broken. Christ's blood was shed. And so the communion now is no longer a remembrance of what God did in Israel, but it's a remembrance of what Christ did on the cross. And it's a celebration of eating of that and participating in his death, burial, resurrection to new life, and looking forward to eating and drinking with him again. That's the Passover. Now, this is one we're probably not as familiar with, the Feast of the Weeks. So this is the the, the wheat harvest. This is Pentecost. So in the Passover, Jesus becomes the spotless lamb, the sacrificial lamb that fulfills it. But in Pentecost, what do we know about Pentecost? Acts 2? Anybody? So after, so after Jesus is resurrected, he appears to the disciples, he gives them a commissioning, and then he sends the Holy Spirit. The Feast of the Weeks was a wheat harvest. So when Jesus sent the Holy Spirit, he was sending them to the harvest of the nations. Remember, the, the point of Acts is that the gospel goes to Jerusalem, all of Judea, Samaria, and then the ends of the earth. Jesus said, it is better that I go so that I can send my Holy Spirit, who reminds you of all things, will teach you and guide you. The church began to grow after the Spirit was sent at Pentecost. And the church brought in the harvest because of the Son ascending and sending the Spirit. It's two out of three. So now we are in the Feast of the Booths. And this one in particular we're going to spend a little more time on because this is where Jesus is now. So this word booths also means tabernacle. For many of you who've been around the church for a while, it also means dwelling. And this should bring some thoughts and emotions to mind because Israel, when they left Egypt, they no longer had homes. They were looking for a place to dwell. And there's something within every one of us who wants a place to belong. They want a place of dwelling. They want a place to feel safe. They want a place to know that this is where I belong. But God was training them to say that wherever you are, Put up a booth, put up a tabernacle, I will be with you. And so that kind of sets this up. But this festival, and I didn't realize this before this week, and so I started looking at it, plays an integral role in very important times in the history of Israel. Uh, turn forward a few books in your Bible to 1 Kings chapter 8. So let me set the scene, and we can't go through this. This is a great chapter. Uh, 1 Kings chapter 8, Solomon has just built the temple. Remember, David could not build the temple because there was blood on his hands. Solomon built the temple that God prescribed so that people could come and God would have a dwelling place where they would worship him. And Solomon, I encourage you to read chapter 8. Solomon goes into this great prayer through the entire chapter. And we just read the the benediction earlier. Uh, But he says some interesting words here. Now, he doesn't mention the Feast of the Booth, but we know what it is in verse 2 where he says... And all the men of Israel assembled to King Solomon at the feast of the month of Ethnium, which is the seventh month. Feast of the booth, seventh month. And so all of Israel comes and Solomon blesses the Lord and he gives instructions to Israel. But he says some interesting things. If you read through this, he mentions dwelling again and again and again. Verse 12, he says, the Lord um, has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. I have indeed built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. 
This language of dwelling is synonymous with booths and tabernacles. It's a dwelling place for God, a dwelling place for God. But then Solomon says something very interesting. Solomon is given directions for this temple down to the letter. But he says something very interesting in verse 27. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. And so as he prays from this point on, he appeals to God's heavenly dwelling. So Solomon understood that that God was not going to be confined to just this one building, that his God was omnipresent. His God is in the very heavens and his God is wherever he lifts up a prayer to. He understood that his God is heavenly and above all things. And this is a great chapter to read through. But so this is one of the most pivotal times in Israel's history that they built a temple, that they had a land of their own, that they had prosperity. Solomon was probably the richest man to ever live on the earth. And we know where that got him later on. But early on, he gave glory to where glory was due. And he pointed people to the God who had fulfilled his promises through David. And then he pointed them to God's heavenly dwelling place. The next time this comes up is in Nehemiah chapter 8. This is a long account and we can't get into that, but write this down. Look at this later. So what's going on in in Nehemiah? If you remember the Israelites, because of their wickedness, they were captured. They were taken into Babylon and Assyria. And three different waves of Israel uh, come back to the land. Ezra had, had rebuilt the temple and Nehemiah comes back in the third wave to rebuild Jerusalem. So they rebuild the city of Jerusalem. The temple's there. The walls have been completed. And Ezra, who's this great Bible scholar, encourages them to read the law and they're reading and they find the Feast of the Booths and they realize we haven't been keeping this. This is something that's been lacking. So they declare it to the people and the people say it's a good thing and they follow the Feast of the Booths for seven days. And then the eighth day they celebrate and it is a good thing. So the Feast of the Booths is what drives the dedication of the temple and the dedication of the restoration of Israel. Zechariah 14 is another one that has a lot of context. We're not going to read that either, but I want you to write that down in your, in your notes. Zechariah 14, the end of this prophecy. So Zechariah, Ezra, and Nehemiah, they are, they are contemporaries. Uh, Zechariah was one of the ones who was praying for and advising Ezra. And so he gives this proclamation of the day of the Lord. This great picture when Israel will, will truly be the city on a hill it's supposed to be, this shining nation, and all the nations of the world will come and worship. And do you know what feast he compares it to? The feast of the booths. The day of the Lord when wine will will flow and the produce will be in abundance and everyone will come to Jerusalem to worship. This looks forward to a time when they will have an eternal dwelling place. When no one ever again will come against Jerusalem. And that's what Zechariah chapter 14 is about. So as we like to do, we always fast forward. So as Zechariah looks forward to this, John sees it plainly. Turn to Revelation chapter 21. I'm going to read one verse. Hopefully you can get there quickly. Give you a shortcut. Go all the way to the end. Go a few pages back. Chapter 21, verse 3. This is John's vision of Revelation. This is the new heavens and the new earth. All things are restored. What happens in verse 3? I heard a loud voice saying, from, or excuse me, a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. This theme of dwelling goes from Israel in the wilderness to the establishment of the temple, to the rebuilding of Jerusalem, to looking forward to the day of the Lord, to the consummation of the day of the Lord. This whole desire of a place to dwell is fulfilled in new heavens and new earth. Because they will dwell with God. Not will they dwell around his temple or wonder if God is there or not, but they will dwell with him forever. He will be their God. They will be his people. The consummation of this is at the end. Let's let's bring this back to Christ. What is the word that John uses in 114? The word became flesh and did what? Dwelt among us. Tabernacled among us. Boothed among us. So the son came down to dwell on earth and he told us it is better that I leave so that I send my spirit to do what within us? To dwell within us. So the son came down to dwell on earth 
went back up to heaven, ascended to send the spirit to dwell with us. And he gave John a vision toward a day when we would one day dwell with God. The dwelling we have in the Holy Spirit is a small inkling, a little sweet taste of what it will be like to one day be reconciled to God. These temporary dwellings that we live in here now, the temporary dwellings that Israel was reminded of will be permanent because of what the son did, sending the spirit and now reconciling us to the father. And so understanding Christ as fulfilling the Feast of the Booths, and we can't get into everything here. He's going to teach over the next few weeks. We're going to walk through that. But he's going to, he's going to unwrap the, the teaching of the Feast of the Booths and show how he fulfills all of the rituals that they were doing. I just want to kind of set the stage. I want to whet your appetite a little bit. Hopefully this should excite you. Hopefully this should give you awe and wonder and how God works and how God reveals this to us. And it should get you excited to read your Bibles and get excited that through the sun, the dwelling place that we all long for, a place to belong, a home where we will not be uprooted is found in Christ. One day be confirmed by our going to be with the Father, New Jerusalem coming to earth. So we spent a lot of time on, on the front end of, of this message just because I, I want you to get this and remember this over the next few weeks as we're in the festival of the booths. And so for us, uh, Jesus in his time is going to be in Jerusalem for the next couple months until the Feast of Dedication, which is chapter 10. So we're also going to be with Jesus in Jerusalem on Sunday morning for the next couple months as we work through to, to chapter 10. This is the third year in Jesus' ministry. Remember, there's been two Passovers. Since he began the next Passover, six months in the future will be his last. And so this ends his Galilean ministry. This is his kind of the the triumphal entry comes in chapter 12. But this is beginning it. And we're going to get into this right now of where Jesus's brothers want him to go boldly. And Jesus is going to send a message, not the message that they want him to send. But he knows that his time, his message will Uh, begin to usher in the end. And so this is where we find ourselves. This is where we are in in John. So give you give you a good idea. We're in chapter seven. We're already in the third year of Jesus's ministry. All right. So now we can go on to what are we in verse three? So verse chapter seven, verse three. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. Uh, So Matthew 1355 tells us Jesus's brothers. James, Joseph, Simon, Judas. Um, Yes, he had physical brothers. He had biological brothers. Mary had other children after Jesus. I don't care what any other church tells you. I I, I believe Matthew. Um, And so these these four brothers are questioning Jesus. And of course, uh, as younger brothers do, they're, they're, they're kind of goading the older brother a little bit. But they're still looking for proof. So his brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea. You hear this? These younger brothers are, are, are trying to boss him around. Well, if you're this, this big shot, go to Judea. Show your disciples. Show everyone what you're, you're doing. And they completely misunderstand his ministry. Because everyone tried to get Jesus to be more public. And he, they tried to get Jesus to draw attention to himself. Remember, just a few weeks ago, they were trying to crown him king. But his timing was not subject to them. And his brothers were just as guilty as the rest. His brothers assumed that he wanted public attention and recognition. And their, their words are interesting here. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. They want Jesus's works to be for the benefit of the world. They want him to work for the world. They want him to show off so that the world can think he's great. Because why wouldn't you work to be accepted by the world? And this assumption still exists today. And this is where we bring it to our modern context. Context, Because this is a real temptation for anyone in authority, especially those in gospel ministry. And this amazed me how, how often people ask what my aspirations are or, or where do you want to be in five years or you know, what, what's your, your, your ultimate plan? It's like, I want to grow people in maturity in Christ. But yeah, but I know. But after that, what's, what's the bigger and better thing that you're, that you're on to? And I initially thought that was a, a very American thing, and it is. But this is a 
a, a thing that's common to man. Even his, his, his brothers wanted him to have this big ministry. And the sad, sad news is that many fall victim to the spotlight. Many abuse their authority and, and, and many uh, are, are guilty of believing their own headlines. And I don't want to get into details, but there are several of these in the news right now. Pastors of very prominent churches, big churches, who have used their authority against those who, are there, who they're supposed to serve. And we have a lot of pastors, sadly, many pastors that I respect who can't get enough of hearing themselves talk and want the spotlight so much that, that they think all that they have to say is, is valuable, even when they're speaking beyond Scripture. And this is, this, is, this is serious and this is real. It was the same then. Let's go on. John tells us what was going on with the brothers. For not even his brothers believed in him. This always fascinated me. I mean, anyone who's grown up with brothers understands, like, there's this love-hate relationship between, between brothers. But younger brothers typically look up to the older, older brother, but it's really hard for a brother to admit that his brother is, is special. If you've got a brother, you, you, you know how this is. But I, I don't know how you could live with Jesus. He's 32 or 33 at this point, and he's never sinned. He's never answered a question wrong. He's, he, 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 never, he never talked back. He, he never did anything he wasn't supposed to do. I mean, shouldn't there be some kind of clues that there's something different? I think if any of you parents, if your, your, children were, if your child was obedient for a week, you'd think something was wrong. This is 32, 33 years of him never making a mistake. And as you think about it, it shows you the, the hardness of the human condition. That you can be staring at the Son of God and be so dead in your sin that you can't see him for 33 years. It's so amazing at the plans of God. Because these same brothers who did not believe in him, who were challenging him, one, uh, becomes Jude, who wrote Jude later in the Bible. One is, is uh, James, who probably wrote James in the Bible. And so God's timing overrides their, their hardness, but it wasn't ready yet. This is still early on, but his brothers would come to believe. We don't know about all four, but we know at least two. So this is how he responds to his brothers. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. What's he talking about here? This is something we wouldn't get in English, but in Greek, there's, there's two main words for time. One is kairos, which is opportunity, season. The other is chronos, from which we get chronograph, um, chronography. It's literal time. And so Jesus is using kairos here. He's not saying that this is not my, my time is in my specific minute, but this is not the opportune time. This is not the, the, the appointed time. This is not the, the right uh, opportunity for this. And so he's kind of telling them that my schedule is up to the Lord. It is not determined by you. I am on a divine, I'm on a divine mission and my time is not yet. Although yours, since you're not a believer, you can do whatever you want. There is no divine agenda for you. For me, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. You're of the world. You can do whatever you want. But I serve the Father, and my time is not yet. Jesus works according to the plans of the Father. He's not influenced by man. And so what does this have to do with us? And he's going to mention time again at the end. So every time Jesus talks about his, his time, the opportunity, we should pay attention because when he repeats himself, he's probably trying to get us to see something. So Jesus says, my time is not yet. What time is he talking about? Now, there's a little bit of speculation here, um, but there are some things I'm going to speculate on, and there's some things I know for sure. What I'm speculating on is that he knew if he made himself public, if he walks in on day one of the feast, and uh, because all these caravans are coming in and there's all this uh, attention, and when he starts when all, this, when all this hustling and bustling is going on and the Jews hate him, they're going to try to kill him right then and there at the feast. But his time, what he was... What he, was, he had come to do was not fulfilled in the Feast of the Booths, but in the Feast of Passover. He, wasn't, he had to become the sacrificial lamb 
before he could become the dwelling place of Israel. Understand? So his time had that we know for sure. That we know that, that his ultimate time was on the cross. That the time of his entire ministry that he kept telling them about, he kept looking forward to the, the Son of Man must die, the Son of Man must suffer. It was all being fulfilled in the cross and not yet in the Feast of the Booths. But, as we'll see, Jesus is a faithful Jew and he does go. But here's what I want you to see here. That Jesus' time was for the cross. That everything was leading up to him dying on the cross. And Jesus would have died earlier. It would have been outside the Father's plan, but it would have been incomplete. Because there would have been no redemption for sin. There would have been no sacrificial lamb. Thank God for the cross. Many people who don't understand redemption get so sickened when they think of the cross. We should be filled with joy. Because if it was not for the cross, we have no hope of a dwelling place. We have no hope of a harvest. We have no hope of an eternal inheritance. And so Jesus' time had to be perfect, and it, and it had to be that way. Because the Passover that saved Israel from their, their enslavement in Egypt must be fulfilled in an enslavement to sin that could only happen in the way that it did. And so Jesus was walking according to the time of the Father and not the pressure of his brothers. And he goes on. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. This seems like it's out of left field. Jesus is here talking about his time, their time, and now he gets into the world hates me. What is he doing here? If you notice... He flips the words of his brothers because his brother said, why don't you do your work so that the world can see? This is the first time that John uses the word world in a negative sense. His brother said, why don't you do your work so that the world can see? Jesus says, well, the world hates me because I call their works evil. So Jesus' brothers are still looking for him to be exalted. And Jesus said, if if I tell the world what I what, what I really think, they they hate me. This is interesting here because, and then Jesus says to them, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me. This is harsh words. Jesus right now is putting him at contrast with them. You don't believe in me. The world can't hate you. The world doesn't hate its own. It loves its own. The world can't hate you because you don't know me. But it will. It does hate me because I am in opposition to the world. Have you ever thought about this? Like, in reality, if you don't believe in Jesus, if you don't believe in the Bible, why do you care what Christians think about you? Why do you care what followers of Christ say about you? I mean, because really, if you were consistent in your thinking that, well, Jesus doesn't matter, the, the, the Bible is old and, and irrelevant, then who cares what we think? But we know this in our world that the Bible, because the Bible hates Christ, anything in us that points to Christ, the world, or excuse me, because the world hates Christ, anything in us that points to Christ, the world will hate. The world loves to think of itself as as good, but it hates to be called out for what it really is. And this is what, this is why they hated him so much, because Jesus called the works of the world, and these these Jews, the, the Jewish religious leaders, thought that they were the most righteous of them all. And he calls their work evil, and they hated him for it. We see that everywhere now. It's no different. When you call wickedness wicked, they hate you. When you call sin, sin, they hate you. You're hated and harassed. Darkness does not want to be exposed. Darkness feeds on deception. Darkness feeds on calling itself something other than what it really is. This is this tension, what's going on here between Jesus and his brothers. Right now, you are sons of darkness. The world can't hate you, but it must hate me. We have to remember that because we're going to get into this more later on, I think in chapter 15, where Jesus talks about the world hating him. I talk to Christians every week who are surprised. Why does the world respond this way? Why do they respond this way to Chick-fil-A or the baker or, or whoever who just stands up for biblical values? The world is supposed to hate you. If you serve your master, they hated your master. They will hate you. Don't be surprised at this. I remind you, don't be surprised at this. And here's something that might make you a little uncomfortable, and it should. Because if the world loves the Christ follower, one of them is being deceptive. 
The world loves the Christ follower. Either they're being deceptive or the one who's calling themselves a follower of Christ is being deceptive. Because if you said what Jesus said, they would hate you. Make anyone uncomfortable yet? It, it, It really saddens me when I hear Christians who love the things the world loves so that they can be loved by the world. To be conformed to this world rather than be transformed by Christ. Um, I love Isaiah 5. You can get there quickly. I'll turn there, otherwise I'm just going to read it. Isaiah 5, 20, 21. We looked at this in Romans, where it says that not only are the ones who uh, do these deeds in chapter 1 are they guilty of God's wrath, but those who approve of those who do these deeds. Uh, Isaiah 5, 20 says this. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Let us not be guilty of that. Let us not trade good for evil so that the world can be pleased with us. We're called, like Christ, to testify to the truth. And the truth, Christ says, it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. We're called to the same thing. If we're called to follow Christ, we are called to the same thing. And if we follow after Christ, shouldn't we expect that the world would look at us the same way it looked at him? We expect that we're going to do what Christ did and they're going to love us all of a sudden? If we're seeking to be loved by the world, we're more like Christ's brothers than we are like Christ. And I would much rather hear good and faithful servant than to water down the gospel and then one day hear, I never knew you. To come with a different message for the world that the world should love. Just to kind of put this out there. If everyone loves you and your your ministry, you're probably not being faithful to Christ. 70,000 people show up every week to, to, to hear you tell them how awesome they are. You're probably not being faithful to Christ. Because if you talk like Jesus did, they will hate you. Guaranteed. Because you're calling darkness what it is. Verse 8. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to the feast for my time has not yet fully come. Well, we know he does go to the feast. Spends the next couple chapters there. A lot of people love to say, well, well, this is proof that Jesus was a liar. This is proof that Jesus said, Jesus did something completely, than, 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 completely different than what he said. Let's look at his words here. Let's apply what we've learned already about time. He says, you go up to the feast. I am not going up. Many uh, manuscripts say not yet going up to the feast. For my time has not yet fully come. This is not time like, okay, it is not my, my hour, but the opportune time has not yet come. And so the, the way that we should read this is, I'm not going up to the feast how you think. I'm not going because you told me to. I don't answer to you. I answer to the, to the eternal plan of my Father in heaven. I'm not going... Not yet. Not right now with you. Remember, his time is not influenced by by man. So after the saying, he remained in Galilee. He let his brothers go. He let all the big pomp and circumstance and all these caravans that came from all over to go to Jerusalem go. And then he himself, verse 10, but after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he went up, not publicly, but in private. His timing was perfect. He knew what he was doing. He didn't go the way everyone expected him to, but he was a faithful Jew. He would not have disobeyed God's command for every Jewish male to go. And he's going to make the most of his time there. We'll get there over the next couple of weeks, and I wish I could get into it, but uh, we're, we're not going to. He went in private. He wasn't concerned with the spotlight. They wanted him to be exalted. They wanted him to exalted to man in the eyes of man, but he knew better. He went, he went in private because he had a purpose. Verse 11, the Jews were looking for him at the feast. These are the same religious leaders. Where is he? The Judeans were looking for him. He's the talk of the town. Everyone's wondering about him. They're continuously looking for him. Probably to entrap him. They still want to kill him. Where is this guy? So we can catch him in some kind of lie. We can catch him. We can accuse him of of, of blasphemy and put him to death the way we should. Jesus knew this and he went in secret. And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he's a good man, others said, no, he's leading the people astray. We talked about the the Jews grumbling before. This is not grumbling as in arguing. This is muttering as in under their breath. 
quietly, low key. This is them muttering to one another because, as we'll see in just a moment, they're, they're fearful of speaking openly against him. Some were saying he's a good man. Others are saying, no, he's leading people astray. Here's another mark of a successful ministry. It will cause you to go one way or the other. There is no remaining neutral when you have a a gospel ministry. Because Jesus said he came to divide families. I will turn brother against brother and mother against, uh, against sister. It will divide people. The gospel is meant to. There's a wide way and a narrow way. When you share the gospel with someone, there will be one of two responses. Uh, I, I care nothing about that or how can I be saved? There is no ambivalence. There, there, there can't be. And so this is beginning to take its seed with, within the people. And there's a distinction here between the Jews and the people. The Jews are still the, the, the leaders, the overarching Judeans, but the people... Th- they're kind of muttering amongst themselves. And it shows the, the power and the influence of the Jewish leaders to influence popular opinion. And even more discourse, because even those who believed who, who he was a good man are so afraid of their status in the culture that they dare not speak of him. Even those who think he's leading people astray are afraid to speak about it. Because for fear of the Jews... Should we expect any different? If the, mere, if the mere conversation about Jesus was striking fear into the hearts of, of, of the Jews, should we expect any different when we talk about Christ? And the real question is, are we afraid to talk about Jesus? I want to make this, this clarification because this, this is important. A lot of people have generic conversations about God. Um, a lot of people believe in different gods, and we can talk about a god and, and not offend anyone. But it was the name of Jesus in Acts that, that where, where the Jews beat the disciples and told them never utter that name again, never preach that name again. Of course, they did, and they considered it an honor. But it is the name of of Jesus that offends. It is the name of Jesus that 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 separates, that divides. Because you can talk about a generic god all day long. But when you ask them to either put their faith or to to put their faith in the God who became man, the God who was the Passover lamb, the God who died and rose again, the God who is seated on high in the throne, the God who will one day come back and be judge of the living and the dead. That's a whole different ballgame. And it's the name of Jesus that offends and that challenges. So a few years ago, I was asked to consult on a TV show. Um, I had a friend who he uh, he had done he had a ministry that happened at, at different at different churches and and he was always trying to find ways to use entertainment to engage with with culture and so he had all these ideas on how to um, subtly ask people questions and then and and then and then point them to Jesus and so we sat in a really nice office uh, with a really uh, prominent news, uh, um, sort of as prominent as you can be in the Orlando area, but a, a, a prominent Christian uh, who's, who's in the media and who has a lot of influence. And we sat down for this, th- this consultation meeting. And so the idea is, is laid out. And I'm sitting there watching this whole thing. And this guy who's professing to be a, a, a Christian, he asked this, this really poignant question. He said, well, what type of show is this, is this going to be? How far are you going to go with, with this Christian stuff? So we asked him to clarify, and he said, well, if you use the G word, you could be on these, this many networks. If you use the, 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 the J word, you might be able to get on the Christian stations overnight. You hear what he's saying here? This is a Christian who's in, in a meeting talking about, uh, with, with, with other Christians, talking about putting a, a TV show together and he uses the G word or the J word. Because if you use the, the J word, none of these stations will touch you. None of these sponsors will, will touch you. But you can use the G word all day long and you can do whatever you want with it. And that was six years ago. Imagine now 
How much has changed in the last six years? How much the world hates the name of Jesus? How much the name of Jesus divides? I walked out of that, out of that meeting. I said, I, I don't want anything to do with this. Like, there, there's, there's, there's nothing to do here. Um, and that just really saddened me. And that's always stuck with me. And I guarantee that's not the first time that conversation has gone on when, when they talk about what is acceptable media. Well, you can talk about some generic God. But you talk about Jesus, and nah, I, I don't want anything to do with that. That's a, that's a whole different ballgame. So I just want to ask you, as, as we close, do you feel free to speak about Christ? Do you feel that same pressure from the world that, yeah, I can talk about God, I can talk about spiritual things, but when I bring up the name of Jesus, I get a little uncomfortable because I don't know what they're going to think. I'll be honest, I struggle with that. I have a hard time making that transition to talking about Christ, and every time the Lord convicts me of my weakness in that area. Are you afraid of what people might think because of the name of Jesus? Are you afraid that people might hate you because of Jesus? I just want you to remember a couple of things this morning. Think on that for sure. Think, just think about what we learned in, in, the, in the Feast of the Booths and just the, the irony they're looking to dwelling places to point them to God, and God is standing right in front of them, and they, they, they missed it. Um, your Bible is rich. Look through these things on, on your own. Uh, if you have any questions on this, I'd love to talk to you. Uh, and just encourage you, don't be like the world. to seek public glory and, and who wants everything to be exalted or who is ashamed of Christ. But be confident in our Passover lamb who sent his spirit to dwell within us because the harvest is rich. Because our dwelling with him is assured for eternity. And Christ made sure that that is true. And we're going to see that over the next couple of weeks. Let's pray. God, you are so good. You are so good to us because while we are weak and frail and we are scared of what the world thinks about us, you still are patient with us and you bear with us when we are ashamed of you, when we deny you, when in our weakness we just want to be loved by the world. Lord, help us to cling to you. Help us to boldly proclaim your name. Help us to stand on the solid rock that we sung about earlier. Help us to be reminded of the good news of the gospel. Help us to be reminded of all that you have done for us and how Christ fulfills it all for us. Lord, help us to rest in you. Help us to trust in your timing and the things we don't understand. You are God and we are not. Help us to be people who are rooted in truth, who are not afraid to call evil, evil. who are not afraid to, to speak and walk and live in the name of Jesus Christ, because that is the name, the only name under which anyone can be saved. And the name that one day every knee will bow to and every tongue will confess to that he is Lord. Let us be people who live in the Lordship of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.